Acts chapter 6. Let's just, running head start, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts chapter 6 opens with a potential crisis for this young church, this first century baby church, hurting people plus overextended leadership, presented a true recipe for disaster and division. And while the neglect of these widows had been unintentional, the reality these widows had been neglected highlighted two important problems within this church. First, it highlighted the growing inability of the apostles to care for not just the spiritual needs of the people, but also the physical needs. And to their credit, The apostles did not dismiss the complaint of the Hellenists. They didn't make excuses for why the widows had been neglected, but instead the apostles acknowledged the problem. Them, their inability at this point to handle all of the needs of this growing, vibrant church. The spiritual needs, the physical needs had grown to the point that they were inadequate and they recognized it. But what the neglect of these widows also highlighted is a lack of organizational structure to ensure, to safeguard, that issues like this didn't happen. Yes, widows had been neglected. It hadn't been intentional, but don't overlook the obvious. Widows, the poorest people in this society, the people that needed care, that needed help, that needed benevolence, they had gone uncared for. It was a tragedy, a travesty. But the problem had been that there wasn't a structure in place to ensure that the apostles had not been overextended and that needs didn't fall through the cracks and to remedy the problem. The apostles wisely seek to define their job description while also establishing a mechanism by which other qualified servants could be recruited to help in the work of the ministry. And this is what we find in the first several verses of Acts chapter 6. Now, in the end, this organizational structure would produce two offices within the church itself. First, there would be elders. The Bible also refers to them as bishops. We refer to them often as pastors. These men that God would raise up, the apostles in this instance, their job was to care for the spiritual needs of the church, the ministry of the word and prayer. But then the second office would be that of a deacon, whose job it would be to care for the physical needs of the church. So the elders would care. They would give their attention to the spiritual needs. The deacons would give their attention to the physical needs. Now, at Calvary 316, we believe that it's wise to proactively structure the organization of the church in order to sustain growth and maintain ministry effectiveness 
right from the beginning. There are some ministry models that say, uh, don't get into the organization aspects too quickly. Let needs arise. Let the church grow so that uh, as needs present, you can establish certain organization. Well, this was the approach the apostles took. And the problem is, is widows went without food. They had been neglected. So on one aspect, you should allow things to develop organically. But on the flip side, there's an aspect to church leadership that should be proactive to safeguard that not only people don't get burned out, but needs don't go unmet. And in regards to the spiritual needs of the church, we believe that sharing the responsibility of caring for the spiritual needs of the people among a group of elders, not just one pastor who burns himself out over a couple years, but over a group of men who God has raised up, with, with, with insight and wisdom, multiple people praying, multiple people counseling and instructing and teaching and mentoring and leading. We believe that that model, having a group of people sharing these duties will ensure that no one person is overburdened. Our families don't end up sacrificed on the altar of ministry. We can more effectively minister to the people who call Calvary 316 home and that the structure can grow with growth, that is sustainable. Now that said, if this passage hammers home one point, it's that a healthy church must do more than just tend to the spiritual needs of people. There's nothing in our text that indicates that the people's spiritual needs were not going unmet. I mean, for all points and purposes, the apostles are saying that because we're focusing so much on the spiritual needs of the people that these physical needs have gone unmet. And that's a problem. You see, a church, pastors, we can't just care for spiritual needs. There also has to be attention to the physical needs, the practical needs, structure. In essence, widows can't go neglected. Now, in this situation, the apostles decide that in order to free themselves up to better care for the spiritual needs of the people, their principal responsibility, they needed to appoint new recruits to help meet physical needs of the church. Now, even though in Acts 6, these seven men are not referred to as deacons, you you won't find the English word deacon in Acts chapter 6. As a matter of fact, this will come later in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And though they're not called deacons in this passage, there does seem to be consensus among biblical scholars that this passage is indeed the initial establishment. And, and, and it's sort of speak, the law of first mention when it comes to the important office within the church. Now, arguments against this position, and there are those that would argue that what we find here in Acts 6 is not the establishment of deacons, and thus we can't take it as such. Now, my problem with that is that these critics fail to acknowledge two important things. One, the Apostle Paul understood, he acknowledged, that indeed an office existed. That at some point in the development of the church, you had elders and you had deacons. Now, though deacon is not mentioned in the book of Acts, Paul recognized that the office existed, which is why in 1 Timothy 3, he spends the time that he does laying out or expounding upon the qualifications already mentioned here in this text. The other thing that skeptics of this position will point out is uh, they'll overlook the reality that in the first century church, the post-apostolic church, 
very clearly from almost all of the writings of the early church fathers, we find mention not only the role of deacon, but the important role of deacon in the life of the church and administrative responsibilities. And so though we don't find the word deacon mentioned in our text in Acts 6, there does seem to be ample evidence to support this being the initial establishment of the role. Now, we should also point out that in Acts 6, we don't find women mentioned as deacons. I mean, the text is clear. The apostles say, pick out from among yourselves seven men. In 1 Timothy 3, we also see that in the qualifications that Paul lay out, lays out concerning deacons, that, that there were men also mentioned. And, and, and it would be easy to say that the office of deacon should be limited only to men like the office of elder. But I disagree. I won't go into the nitty-gritty, but over and over and over and over again, you will find examples in the book of Acts and throughout the writings in the New Testament of there being women occupying this role of deacon. We would call them deaconesses. So our text doesn't mention women. 1 Timothy 3 doesn't mention women, but there's a lot of evidence, kind of an overwhelming amount of evidence to point to the reality that women can occupy this particular role as well. Now, right from the beginning, I want to make one thing crystal clear. The division of roles here in Acts chapter 6 did not mean there was a distinction of service. As one Greek scholar pointed out, the two words that we have in our text, the two words serve tables and ministry of the word, actually present the same activity with just a different emphasis. I'll say it again. The division of roles here in Acts 6 does not mean there was a distinction of service. It's not as though the apostles felt like serving tables was beneath them or wasn't worthy of their time. They're just faced with a situation they can't do everything, so they call up other servants to take care of the tables. Same service, different kind of a role. You see, both groups, the elders and the deacons, what's awesome is that they were all serving King Jesus. They were all bond servants. They didn't have a right to anything. They had been called. They had been commissioned. God had raised them up. It was the same service to the same king. King Jesus would look down, and he would see the role of the elder, the service there of the prayer and the ministry of the word, and, and the role of the deacon, the service of the deacon, cleaning up tables and, and toilets, making sure cars are parked in the parking lot. Jesus looks down, and he takes honor and glory in all of this service because it's all a service to Jesus. These two groups of people, we're serving. Their service targeted different needs, but it was still the same service to Jesus. In the Greek, the word that we have translated in 1 Timothy 3 as deacon is diagnosos, which means servant or literally the one who waits tables. Though this word, along with its derivatives, diakonio and diakonia, can simply be translated as servant or referred to as some would commonly say a designated doer. And other instances, specifically what, from what we find presented here in Acts chapter 6 and also in 1 Timothy 3, the word deacon implies more than just service. It implies more than just doing a job, but instead carrying a responsibility. I mean, these words will be used all over the 
the Greek text to reply to, 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 to talk about all kinds of people that are serving and doing service or are in service of some kind of variety. And yet when it's mentioned here in Acts 6, mentioned again in 1 Timothy 3, it's more than just serving, but it's instead carrying a responsibility. Though every believer is called by God to serve. I hope you realize that. If you call Jesus Lord, you're referring to him as your king. And as king, you're his servant. And so all of our lives should be a service unto Jesus. But understand, the word diagnosis presented the idea of a person being more than just a servant, but in essence, an overseer of servants. Think of it in this, this way. Though a deacon is still a servant in the house of the master, He's still a slave. Because of his faithfulness, trustworthiness, because of the, the reality that, that that individual has proven to be a good servant, the master of the house calls that individual to now not only serve, but to oversee the service of others. There's a hierarchy in regards to the way that we serve and the way that servants are overseen. Now, this is why at Calvary 316, we reject a lot of the ways the office of deacon has evolved within church life. If a deacon is basically the servant of servants, the servant leader of servants, if that's the role of a deacon, then we don't believe that deacons run the church, which is a common misconception and a common reality amongst, well, southern traditional churches. Deacons run the show. They run the church, and we believe that this idea that, in essence, even the pastors work for the deacons, we see this as unbiblical. You can't justify that manifestation of the role from any instance that the Bible talks about deacons. It's an overemphasis of this job. So we don't believe deacons run the church as, well, servant overseers, nor do we believe that a deacon simply exists to serve. See, on one aspect, we get into error when we overemphasize the role of deacon. But I would say that we also enter into error when we underemphasize the role of deacon, and in doing so, kind of create confusion. See, if a deacon is just a servant, just another servant, that is kind of an email list that anytime something needs to happen at the church, we press send and say, hey, come serve. If it's just that, then what is the distinction between that individual and everyone else who should also be serving? See, on one aspect, it's an overemphasis. On the other aspect, it's an underemphasis. Instead, we believe that a deacon exists to oversee the service of servants. I'll say that again. At Calvary 316, we believe that the Bible presents the idea that a deacon exists to oversee the service of servants, which explains why the apostles intentionally present requirements for the office based on internal qualities of these men, not outward giftings or abilities. Internal character is what was most important, and the apostles in our text present four qualifications for a deacon. First, seek out from among you seven men. Now, don't miss the obvious point there. This indicates that those chosen for the role of deacon couldn't be strangers. 
Like they couldn't be new believers. They couldn't be outsiders. They had to be people with a reputation, people that were known, people that, that the people had seen and respected, understood that there was a role and a calling. You see, in order to lead others, these seven men needed to be known servants. Now, though the passage says to choose out seven men, and some have said, well, you can only have seven deacons. There's no precedent for that in, in the rest of Scripture. It seems as though seven is just what was required at this moment to meet this particular need. There can be more than seven. I think there can be less than seven. Seven is just what fit this moment and is not to be viewed as a universal requirement. So they had to be, well, known. Couldn't be outsiders. Had to come from within the people. Secondly, they had to be of good reputation. Basically, those chosen for the role of deacon needed to be living lives that were above reproach. People needed to know them, know who they were, but also recognize that they were living their lives in church the same way they were living their lives outside of church. You see, it was important for the church to play a role in this, to recognize that, yes, we know who this person is. We have interactions with them, not just in church, but also outside of church. And man, they're of great reputation, of good reputation. In essence, there couldn't be anything fishy about the individual, about their business practices, or about the way that they handled their finances, or the way that they handled themselves at home. Couldn't be anything weird. So they had to be known of good reputation. Thirdly, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea is that a deacon needed to be a person that the people recognized as being filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit. They had to be Holy Spirit people. The gifts of the Spirit had to be obvious in regards to how it was manifesting in and through their lives. The fruit of the Spirit also needed to be evident. It needed to be seen. This factored into this good reputation. This spirit-controlled aspect of their lives, it had to be self-evident. To lead other deacons, to, to lead other people, a deacon needed to be spiritually minded. And this is important. Make a side observation. For the role of a deacon was what? To care for the physical needs, Right? In an application, it would be overseeing the ushers or overseeing a children's ministry or overseeing hospitality or being in charge of the clean team or making sure the, the yard, like deacons were raised up to care for physical needs. So they're meeting physical needs, but the apostles make, make, make it clear that what needed to be evident, they needed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Catch that out. They needed to be filled with the Spirit to clean toilets. Like, it was a requirement for a person to be promoted to oversee a group of people taking care of the facility. That person needed to be controlled and filled with the Spirit of God. You see, please understand, all service is unto Jesus, which makes all service spiritual. You might not think of it as such, but it is which is why this deacon needs to be filled with the Spirit and, fourthly, full of wisdom. In addition to being spiritually sensitive, these leaders would also need to be practical. They couldn't be so spiritually minded that they were of no earthly good. 
Couldn't be in a situation where someone you're meeting together, you're in charge of making sure the facility gets taken care of, and you're not willing to, well, designate responsibilities. Instead, you get together and it's like, well, let's just wait. Let's see what the instruments of cleaning, how they might move. Like, you couldn't be weird. You had to be practical. Like, you had to be controlled by the Spirit, but you also had to have some common sense. You had to be able to handle situations. You had to be controlled by the Spirit, but then you had to allow the Spirit to work, to move, to make decisions, to delegate, to administrate. You had to be full of wisdom, not just knowledge, but how to apply it. Because a deacon managed other servants, these men would need to know how to handle situations and doesn't it take a lot of wisdom to know how to work with other people? Paul, it's important in discussing the role of deacon. He would add a little bit to this list in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Paul says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children, their own houses well, good family. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus." Now, qualifications for deacons has not been really a, a debated topic. The text's pretty clear on how that works. But the big topic of consternation within the church has been, well, how do you select deacons? There's been a lot of debate within church history concerning how in the world, we know what a deacon does, we know who a deacon is, but how do we raise them up? How do we call them out? How in the world do we handle this? Some people believe that it's the job of the congregation to select the deacons. They'll even point out that the apostles did, well, they instructed the church to seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, blah, 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 blah. So some say, well, it's the job of the people to choose from among themselves deacons. In essence, it's a vote. Others believe that it's, well, the job of church leadership to select the deacons. They'll also point to the same text, the same passage, where it seems that even in an instance where the congregation votes, the ultimate decision still rested with, well, the apostles. They said, seek out from among you seven men. Then what did they say? Whom we may appoint over this business. So some say, well, it's, it's solely the job of the congregation, popularity contest, a ballot and a vote, a bit of politics. Others say, well, bypass the people. That's a nightmare. And instead, it should just be the leadership. The elders should pick the deacons. There are those who take Acts 6 just very, very literally. They say that the church should nominate prospective deacons, and then the church leadership chooses them. So it's like a combo effect. You guys vote, create a pool, of options, and then the elders get together and figure out which of those options sounds good, 
and which of them don't. Now, I would agree that this is probably most consistent with a literal reading of Acts chapter 6 that the church picked and the apostles confirmed. However, what makes a dogmatic stand on any one approach so difficult, which is why it's been debated for centuries, is that there's no other passages in Scripture that address how to select deacons specifically. As a matter of fact, it would seem the only biblical constant established in this passage and throughout Scripture concerning both the church and the leadership's role in the process centered not on the selecting of deacons or how to go about that, but instead on the confirming of deacons and how to go about that. Don't forget, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says this concerning the issue, but let those also, speaking of deacons, first be tested. Then, after presumably a period of faithfulness, trustworthiness, then let them serve as deacons. You see, throughout Scripture, confirming is the emphasis with the methodology of selection seemingly secondary. That's why the Bible doesn't speak to it at all beyond this passage. At Calvary 3.16, we believe it's our conviction that it is the ultimate responsibility of the elders to select deacons. Because the elders are intimately involved in the day-to-day ministry of the church, because we see what happens in the children's ministry, what happens in nursery ministry, who's coming up and cleaning and who's not, because the elders are are involved in this day-to-day operation, this functionality, we're provided a better perspective in regards to who is really serving, who is really being called, who is really being faithful, who actually fits the qualifications that have been laid out. Like, the church leadership is able to see, well, the behind-the-scenes servants, the congregation as a whole might not be aware of. You see, if it was just on you to select deacons, you don't know who's serving and who's not, or what their names are. You might have a a good understanding of who you leave your child with in the nursery or in the toddler room, but when it's all said and done, the functionality of knowing who's really being called to be a servant of servants, well, that's a difficult thing for the church as a whole, the congregation to decide on, but is more in line with, well, the leadership, the elders' perspectives. That being said, we believe that the congregation, though you don't select deacons, the congregation has a significant role and confirming deacons for just the opposite reason. Because an elder's exposure to most people is often limited to the ministry within the church, including the church, when it comes to confirming a prospective deacon, does this. It better ensures that the individual actually fits the qualifications. You see, You might be a great servant in the church and a total idiot in the world. As as elders, we might see, man, God's got his hand on this person's life. We see great things happening. That person might be a deacon. But out there, you're not handling your business like you're handling your service here. That You're not handling your marriage like you're presenting. You see, including the congregation and confirming elders... It ensures that these people 
fit the qualifications because, well, if all of us come together and say, yeah, that person, I would agree with that. They fit these qualifications. We can ensure that the person is consistent. So at Calvary 316, and no, this is not one of those things that we would be dogmatic in saying that other churches are wrong and however they go about the process. I don't think you can be dogmatic one way or the other, but our convictions and the way that we go about it here at the church is that the elders select the deacons and then we present them before you to ensure that they, well, fit the qualifications. Which brings us to another important point concerning church organization. And the grand scheme of things, we understand that both elders and deacons exist to serve God by meeting the needs of the church. And while both groups are accountable to the people, they serve, they're accountable to the people they serve, there does seem in this passage to be kind of a hierarchy within the organization of this service. So both groups serve Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. The elders are, are called to follow his lead. The elders are ultimately responsible for all that happen under their leadership. And because deacons are selected by elders, all that happens, all that the deacons do, all of this physical care of the people, ultimately comes back on, well, the elders. Which means that the deacons are overseen by the elders and not the other way. That makes sense? Let me just say that in the most clear way possible. Jesus is the head of this church. The elders have been called to handle the spiritual needs. It's an important service. We're called to be responsible for everything that happens, physical and spiritual. Now, because we can't do it all, we choose out helpers, people to help in the ministry, deacons, and then we give them their cues. That doesn't mean that they serve us. No, they serve Jesus. That doesn't mean they serve you. They do in some regards, but they're ultimately responsible to the elders and to God. Now in Acts 6, there was a real problem within the church. Widows had been neglected. And instead of dismissing the complaint, the apostles, well, they showed great leadership. They owned up to the problem. They presented a wise solution. And in order to ensure situations like this didn't happen again, they do two important things. They define their role, and they delegated responsibility. And we're told, verse 5, that the saying, that this decision, it pleased the whole multitude. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch, they set these men before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them, and the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, to the credit of all those involved, the Hellenists, the widows, the apostles, the bystanders, everyone, because the conflict was handled appropriately. The problem was solved. Satan was denied a foothold. Ministry roles became defined. Organization was established. More servants 
were included. Overall ministry became more effective. Unity was maintained. The church prospered. Pretty awesome results for what could have been a church split, right? And what is attributed to this glorious result of potentially a very bad problem? Everyone handled it appropriately. I encourage you, if you have not been here for the last couple Bible studies, go back and listen to them. Because this is our position, and we believe that problems will arise. Where two or more are gathered, Jesus is in our midst, and we've got issues with one another. That's the reality. People conflict with other people. Personalities clash in the first century church and in this church. But how we go about handling it will ensure that the church grows, that we all mature, that Jesus is glorified, and we don't lose our standing and our community. Note, as a direct result of the way this church handled this situation, Luke tells us, Note, it's very interesting. He says the word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, but but don't overlook it. Luke tells us because of the way this situation was handled, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. According to Josephus, Jewish first century historian, he claims that at this time period, there were approximately 20,000 priests serving at this moment at the temple, active, on-call, mobile priests, 20,000. And we're told here that a great many of them get saved, become obedient to the faith. Like, what's a great many of 20,000? More than half? Could in one instance the church have added 12,000 priests who see the church handle conflict and are like, done? Like, it's amazing to me. And the big question we should consider this morning is why was the handling of this situation directly attributed to this incredible revival taking place among the priestly tribe of Israel? A group of men that should be mentioned knew the scriptures. These men had personally witnessed the ministry, the death of Jesus. They'd seen it with their own eyes. They were there in the temple working when there was a sound that came from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And then there's this weird disturbance of people speaking out in these other languages. They saw the Holy Spirit descend. They witnessed it. They had then seen miracles performed by the apostles. The healing of the lame man there in the temple, the gate called beautiful. These signs and these wonders, they saw firsthand lives being transformed. And yet, what the text indicates is that none of these things produced faith. That that none of them produced belief in Jesus. Until the one thing to tip the scales is that they saw the way the church handled conflict and there's a revival. Does that not interest you or pique your curiosity? Please understand Because human beings are marred by sin, divisions and separations are simply the norm. People naturally gravitate to the company of others who think like them, who look the way that they do. Conflict then between these groups, it inherently manifests. 
We see it. We've seen it from the beginning of time to today. Races war against other races. Nationalities war against other nationalities. Political interests war against other political interests. And religions war against other religions. You know, you'd think that religion would be the one thing to combat the trend of separation. That religion would be the one thing to foster community and, 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 and peace in the world. And yet religion can also be attributed to this division and separation amongst humanity. Even to the point that you can make the argument that more people have died on planet Earth and the name of religion than any other thing that separates us. Politics war against politics. Democrats might not look like Republicans, but one group's not killing the other, at least not yet. You see, religion not just separates, but religion has had nasty effects in the story of humanity. And this is what's further interesting about how religion divides. Though it's true that religion will divide against those of other religions, what's fascinating is that all religions, especially those that provide a path by which humanity can attain some form of restoration with God, the mechanism, the very mechanism by which this restoration with God is attained, for many it works through some form of law, it only serves to further divide people within the religion. So, so understand what makes religion nasty. It's not just that Hindus war against Muslims and Muslims against Christians, whatnot. It's that within each religion, because that religion is founded upon works and law, within the religion, there's separation and division happening. Sunni against Shiite, Protestants against Catholics, over and over and over again, within the same framework, we find further division. You see, a works-based system only further divides this first human category into varying levels of righteousness. In the case of Judaism, because righteousness was based on a person's adherence of the law through their works, the system itself bred, it produced internal divisions. You know, we find this result in every other world religion. We find it even within Christianity. You see, when we began our examination of this conflict between the Hebrews and the Hellenists, I don't know if you recall, but we pointed out that these two groups inherently didn't really like each other. Like they historically harbored disdain for one another. Judaism as a religion had done nothing to remedy these lines of racial distinction and cultural demarcation. In many ways, the system itself fostered them. Judaism not only justified the Hebrews' prejudice towards all Gentiles, but it had created a structure of spiritual superiorities among people who had the same basic beliefs and practices. The Hebrew Jews thought they were more righteous more holy. God saw them more favorably than the Hellenistic Jews because, well, they obeyed a stricter adherence to the law. See, here's a reality, a truth. When any religion 
is established upon human righteousness based upon human effort. It naturally sets the conditions for prejudice and judgmentalism. At its core, religion not only fails to provide a remedy for human conflict, but in the end, religion tragically encourages further and more extreme divisions among humanity. Religion doesn't save a person from their sins, and it doesn't remedy the problem of humanity. Religion only makes things worse. And yet, the teachings of Jesus challenge the entire way of thinking. While it's true that Christianity agrees with the basic division of humanity, the two categories, the righteous and the wicked, you know the comparisons in there. Scripture clearly states that in regards to the first category, the righteous category, there's only been one man to ever occupy it. You see, to be righteous, it's not about works. It's not about law. It's not about effort. It's not about what you do. It's just about Jesus. He was the only one sinless. He's the only one to ever occupy this category of righteous. There's two categories. All humanity is divided into them, righteous and the wicked. It's just Jesus here and everyone else wicked, which gives us great commonality because we're all fallen, we're all sinners, and we're all saved by grace. You see, because our salvation is a matter of faith in Jesus, no man can discriminate against another. Because we're saved by grace, working through faith, we are afforded commonality that should yield unity, not further division. You see, where religion only furthered the division of people a common relationship with Jesus establishes the framework for forgiveness, for love, for unity, for fellowship. Where the law drove a wedge, grace built a bridge. Which is why Peter would say in the second chapter of his first letter that you, speaking of you, are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his, speaking of Jesus, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light, his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have obtained mercy and have now obtained mercy. See, I'm convinced that this unifying effect produced by the Spirit of God when differing people groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, people who would never and had never gotten along, coexist in community. I think that reality, the unifying effect of the Spirit of God in the church today might very well be the single greatest proof as to the power of God and the uniqueness of Jesus. The unity of the church, that's something nothing else can offer. And beyond this, when we see different groups deliberately laying aside hurts and contentions like we see here in Acts 6, in order to maintain this unity, the world, like these priests, well, it's forced to recognize the supernatural because the reaction isn't natural. I think the priests, when the church was birthed, they saw the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists getting along, and they kind of scoff. They're like, it's an emotional high. It's for a moment. 
that'll fade. Just wait. And when the contention arose, I can see these priests sitting back thinking, well, that's the end of that. We know how those two groups operate. Man, I'm glad it's their problem and no longer ours. Like, and then when it doesn't happen like they would think, that it's not a division, it's not a split, that they love each other, tolerate one another, work together, find solutions, deny Satan a foothold. When good things happen as a result of this Holy Spirit community, the priest can no longer deny that there is something radical happening because that doesn't happen. And they look at this and they see it and they responded. This revival of the priest is directly attributed to the church handling conflict because, well, why? Judaism never provided a remedy for that. And they saw it. Salvation, well, they claimed to have a way. But they didn't have a way to remedy human conflict. But now you have this new thing happening that not only provides a better way to be saved, faith and not works, but it fixes problems with people. Please understand that when Christianity is known by grace and our love for one another, the world will take note. But when Christianity is known as being divisive and petty, when we divide over stupid things, we lose our uniqueness, and in many instances, we become nothing more than another failed religious system. And discussing this very reality, a guy I'm not super fond of, but I think has some smart things to say on occasion, Bill Maher, presented, I think, a correct and honest assessment about Christianity. This is what he said. Jesus is great. That's kind of shocking coming from Bill Maher. He says, is there a better role model? No. It's religion. It's people who get in between, the bureaucracy, you know. It's the way people abuse Jesus. You see, Bill Maher says, Jesus is pretty cool. It's all these people that follow him that totally turn me off. That's what he's saying. He says, was there ever a greater victim of name dropping? When we divide, we are not being Christ-like. But when we love each other, even in our pain, even in our hurt, even in the other's ignorance, when we say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. When I seek something greater, something holier, something bigger than myself, when I see that the church and the church unified communicates a holy message and shines a bright light, well, that's when cool things happen. Many, a great many of the priests were saved. Now, in conclusion, Notice what happens once they settled on these seven men. And we're going to say this quickly because we're going to transition to something here in our service. But the first thing that they do is they set them, these seven men, before the apostles. The selecting, the confirming of the deacons, it was something designed to occur publicly, which ensured that the process was not only transparent, but, well, it provided some practical functionalities as well. First, since these men were going to be in charge of caring for the physical needs of the church, presenting them publicly before the people ensured, well, that everyone knew who the deacons were, who was responsible for caring for these particular needs. But also, 
unlike elders who are recognized by other elders and then presented before the church. We believe here at Calvary 316 that God raises up men, that God chooses elders. And our job as the other elders is to affirm that we see God's hand on that individual's life. So elders are not, are not picked out. Like we don't pick elders. God does. Our job is just to try to be spiritually minded enough to recognize God's calling on those individuals. But the deacons are different, right? Because the deacons, they're appointed. So they're selected and then appointed, which means that when someone becomes a deacon, with the title comes a greater level of responsibility and accountability. This person is no longer just one of many servants. They've now been picked out, chosen, raised up to lead other servants. So they set them before the people. It was public. That was important. But then we're told that they prayed for them and they laid their hands on them. Laying hands, kind of weird. I don't like people touching me, except for my wife. I encourage that often. But touching, yeah, germs. Like, not the coolest thing in the world. Like, we think of laying hands in two ways. We either repel because we're kind of germaphobes, or we're like the right hand of fellowship. I know what you're saying. Laying hands. Butt kicking, which is a spiritual gift. So we have like these two reactions to laying hands. In the text, in this culture, please note, that it was an ancient way of identifying with the person. To lay hands meant to identify. Not only did they pray for God's fresh filling, for God's equipping, but the apostles were letting them know that they weren't alone, which I like that. And laying hands, they're connecting. Though roles were being defined and everyone's responsibilities were being divvied, they recognized that they were all on the same team all working towards the same fundamental goals of caring for the needs of the people. The elders, caring for the spiritual, and the deacons, caring for the physical. Now, what's cool...